I think if there's one thing that um, 25 odd years as a Christian and um, uh, now about a half of that as a Christian leader has taught me amongst the many things one important thing is the deep-seated and destructive nature of human pride. I, I see it in myself daily. And I think as I get older I see more and more how ugly it is and how difficult it is to eradicate from the human heart. And I see the way it distorts relationships where it damages people and it damages our relationship with God in particular. Over the last couple of months we've explored, uh, if you've been here, the pride that there was in Corinth. They were actually having a pretty easy time as a church and it was going to their heads. They felt they had moved beyond the uh, Apostle Paul's humble style of leadership And they wanted something that was a bit more all singing and all dancing. They wanted to impress this city with their wisdom and their great preachers. They wanted to enjoy the best that Corinthian culture could offer. They didn't want to be despised and rejected like Jesus. They wanted to be applauded and fated. And if you've been with us, you've seen that Paul has said in in different ways, again and again, he said no. Now they must understand, he says, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, that the central message of Christianity, the message of the cross, is always going to be considered foolish by the world. They must understand that God's determined strategy in his world is actually to choose not many wise, not many influential, not many noble. So a church actually that, uh, that appeals to the cultural elite he says, is a contradiction in terms in verses 26 to 31 of chapter 1. They must understand that actually true Christian leaders are not going to be the sort of people who will impress the world. They will be weak, fearful and trembling, simply proclaiming Christ and demonstrating, proving that what God says is true. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. The verdict of the world is always going to be that the gospel is an idiotic message. It's Tony Blair apparently tonight, if you're watching the Blair years, is going to say, um, when you talk about faith in our system, frankly people think you're a nutter. And the Apostle Paul would say, Amen. They think the gospel is... Um, a foolish message proclaimed by rustic simpletons and weaklings to uh, people who are too pathetic to realise that they are wasting their time. And that hurts our pride, doesn't it? And we want to say no. We want to say surely we can be recognised by the world. Surely we can be. We should be honoured as wise. People should see that we are worthy of respect. We don't want to be despised. But Paul has said again and again, God's plan and God's purpose is all wise. He is determined. No, as Paul puts it, he delights to show his strength through weakness. 
verse 25 of chapter 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. He chooses ordinary people, says uh, the apostle, precisely to shame the wise and the strong so that people won't boast in men, verse 31, they will boast in him. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says he uses unimpressive leaders precisely because, verse uh, um, uh, 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 5, or or precisely in order that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. God is determined to wean us off our addiction to the respect and honour that this world um, calls us to yearn for so that we can enjoy God. so that we can really revel in what God really gives us. He's been saying that again and again and again. We have been, he said, way back in chapter 1 verse 5, we have been enriched in every way. We do not lack any spiritual gift, chapter 1 verse 7. God will keep us strong to the end and present us without blame, chapter 1 verse 8. He is faithful, chapter 1 verse 9. Christ is our wisdom, righteousness, holiness and redemption, chapter 1 verse 30. If only we can see what God has done for us, how much God has done for us, how, how his awesome wisdom works, we would find complete satisfaction forever in him. We are fools. Wallowing around in the river mud of the world's respect when a golden sandy beach lies before us and beyond that a vast warm ocean of God's love which stretches from here to eternity. And we say, I'll stay in the mud, thanks. And from uh, chapter 2, verse 6 onwards, Paul takes up this second theme. This theme that he's begun to impress upon the Corinthians again and again. Not now, you won't be respected by the world. But then the second theme, that you have riches and wealth in Christ. Indeed, he says, you have wisdom in Christ. Verse 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothings. The the Corinthians seem to have um, used the word mature to describe um, a small, privileged, highly educated elite. And uh, Paul makes it plain that actually the mature that he speaks of in uh, verse 6 are not the small elite at all. They are all true Christians. All true Christians possess wisdom. 
all true Christians are mature in that sense. Not the wisdom of the rulers of age, of this age, that's, that is not the wisdom of the opinion formers or the dominant powers in government and education or even the dominant powers in religion. Now they're coming to nothing, says Paul. It is a wisdom, he will say again and again in this passage, that God's people are given by the Spirit. He uses three images to try to help us uh, to to grasp that. And uh, unfortunately, um, perhaps fortunately for your lunches, I'm only going to get to two of them um, uh, this morning. But I... Let me just alert you to the, the, the three images that he uses. He talks about secrets revealed, or a secret revealed. He talks about depths explored. And finally, at the end of this section, he talks about minds renewed. Let's look at the, uh, the first one of those if this will work. Oh, you're going to get first two on that one. Secrets revealed. Verse 7. Now, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, he says, for a long, long time, says the Apostle Paul, God kept a secret. He hid something. He says, it wasn't understood even by the authorities in Jesus' day. Verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They saw Jesus and they didn't see the Lord of glory. They saw a nuisance, a threat, And so they crucified him. They were blind. The prophets of the Old Testament, says uh, says Paul, knew that God was keeping a secret. They knew that God had something extraordinary up his sleeve. They sensed, in fact, that it was beyond their wildest imaginings. Paul quotes um, quite loosely from the prophet Isaiah to make a point. However, as it is written, verse 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And their eyes are closed, say the prophets. We can't see, our ears are stopped up. We can't can't hear that, that inaudible sound that seems just beyond us. When he um, speaks about no mind conceiving, he uses a very vivid literary idiom which, which, which I think really gives us a sense of what uh, the, the, the um, prophets were, uh, were, were talking about. Paul says, it hasn't risen in any heart what God has prepared for those who love him. Isaiah is saying it's it's, it's beyond the wildest imaginings of our hearts. The sun hasn't dawned on our hearts yet. 
But now, says Paul, now that secret that the prophets longed to see and spoke about with longing has been revealed to us. Verse 10, God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Now elsewhere it makes it very plain that the Spirit doesn't simply reveal these things out of nowhere by and large. God gives us the Bible. God gives us Bible teachers who uh, teach us. God helps us read the Bible for ourselves and to understand it. But, but, but it's absolutely clear as well. We only see the secret wisdom of God. It is only revealed to us as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, opens blind eyes, unblocks deaf ears, and releases our captive hearts so that the sun rises on our hearts like, 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 like the early rays of the dawn and the reality of what God has prepared for us suddenly dawns on us, suddenly enters our hearts so that these words become more than just words, they become a profound truth a secret that has been laid bare for us. This was God's plan, says Paul, before time began for our glory. Did you see that in verse 7? We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, that God destined for our glory before time began. When God says he, he destined it, when, uh, when Paul says God destined it for our glory, he's hinting at so much. He means that actually understanding this secret actually gets us to glory, actually, actually glorifies us and assures us that one day that, that, that um, glory that presently we only taste will one day burst into its full form. It is the knowledge of that secret that itself gives us the promise of glory. He means also that embracing that secret, delighting in that secret, transforms us now. It is for our glory in eternity. It is for our glory now. We find ourselves now actually being infused with true, true joy. We find ourselves now able to follow Christ. Now able to imitate him. Now discovering actually the true glory of being human beings. Now enjoying life. As Paul puts it in the... 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. We are those who gaze on the Lord's glory and are transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God destined it for our glory in eternity. He destined it for, uh, it for our glory now. And... I suspect almost certainly he wants us to extend that to, to understand that that is our true glory in the world as well. 
The Corinthians thought they knew what would bring them glory in the world. Clever teaching, brilliant shows. No, no, says Paul. What really brings you glory in the world is knowing the secret. The world may and will despise you. But actually it will not help be able to help giving you respect. So what is the secret? I hope we've already seen. It is Christ. And all that Christ gives us. Did you notice? The ignorant rulers of this age, says Paul, couldn't see the Lord of glory. Didn't recognise him. That's what made them crucify him. Or that passage in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. Our transformation into glory was because we gaze on the Lord's glory. We see the glory of Christ in the gospel of God. Christ and all that Christ brings to us is the secret. And God reveals it to us by his spirit. Yes, we can read the Bible all our lives. We can we can, we can hear preachers, we can read theology books, but it is the Holy Spirit who takes those truths and makes the light dawn in our hearts so that we have true wisdom, so that we understand what it means to be human, how the world really works, what our future holds. Because we see Christ. And suddenly everything fits together. Only the Spirit can do that. He destined it before the beginning of time for our glory. Secret revealed then, says Paul. We need to know, and when we know it, and all Christians do, we have the most extraordinary witches of wisdom. And then he uses a picture of depths explored to try to help us to understand. Begins that in verse 10 of chapter 2. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And Paul then starts to unpack what he's, what he's talking about, what he's trying to help us to grasp by explaining that the spirit of a person is their, their inmost unseen character, isn't it? 
verse uh, uh, 11. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In other words, he's saying, we know from experience but to meet someone and talk to them, you only get glimpses, don't you, of what they're really like. If you spend a lot of time with them, perhaps the picture starts to build. But who knows what really goes on in hearts? Only the spirit of a person really knows what goes on in the heart, uh, inside a person. Well, he says in the same way, verse 11, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is exactly like that, says, says Paul. It is, it is the part of God, it is the aspect of, of God. The theologians would say it, it, he is the person of God who has the most deep, most intimate, most profound access to the very heart of God himself, to the very deepest dimensions of who God is. And then Paul gives us the, the, the thunderbolt. And this spirit is given to us. Verse 12. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given to us. As I said, we're just not going to get to the end of this chapter because we, we, we're just going to have to stop and linger on, on uh, verse 12 to try to understand the, 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 the depths and the importance of what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul is saying, that if you have the Spirit of God, and all Christians do have the Spirit of God, you have the most extraordinary privilege imaginable. You have access to the heart of God himself, to the, to the depths of God. In this world, as we live normally and naturally, we don't even have that depth of relationship with another person. Who has known the spirit of another person? Well, some, if you're married for 30, 40, 50 years, maybe you get pretty close to it. But uh, I know people who have been married that long and they say that sometimes there are still surprises. But... God, in his wisdom, has given us his spirit. Access to the, the depth of his heart more deeply and more profoundly than any person can ever have access to any other person. And he says, this is what the spirit who does that who plumbs the depths, who searches the depths of God and helps us, therefore, to know the depths of God. This is what the Spirit who does that helps you to do. Did you see it? We may understand what God has freely given us. We may understand the free gift of God. That 
is the key thing that God wants us to know if we are to engage with him at, the, uh, at his heart, if we are to know his deepest personality. There are a couple of other verses in the New Testament that perhaps help us to unpack then what he's talking about when he talks of what God has freely given us. I want us to go to those for a a few minutes to try to understand 1 Corinthians uh, 2 verse 12. The uh, most extensive one is Romans 8 verses 31. To 35. I put it up there, but if you've got Bibles, you can uh, you can look at it. What then shall we say in response to this? Says Paul in in response to the magnificent story of God's grace and God's absolute solid determination to glorify us in eternity with resurrection life. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us, same word, all things? And then Paul unpacks what that gracious gift of all things, and that is, and that's why this, uh, these verses are important. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So says Paul, this is the gracious gift of God. These are the essential elements of the gracious gift of God. God removes any possibility of accusation before him. He has justified us. He has set us right with him. Christ has died for our sins so that there is no sin in our past, our present or our future that can separate us from God's Love. There is now, says Paul in Romans 8.1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the first thing that Paul wants to, to, uh, to pick out as God's gracious gift to us because our greatest loss is that we were separated from God and therefore our greatest gift is that we can never be separated from God by our sin because God has forgiven it if we are believers here. But more than that, says Paul, God has not only assured us of no condemnation now, he has given us a glorious hope. In fact, he has clarified it through um, um, uh, Christ in ways that the Old Testament just longed to see because he raised Jesus to life. He brought Jesus back to bodily resurrection life as the promise that we too will enjoy that. You think heaven doesn't sound very exciting. I tell you, when the, when the first apostles saw Jesus raised to bodily, physical life, eating a meal with them, enjoying uh, being 
alive again in that solid, substantial way, Luke tells us they could not believe for joy. So wonderful was it. They thought it was, they were perhaps looking forward to some attenuated uh, spiritual uh, sitting on clouds and strumming harps sort of existence in the future. And then Jesus rises to physical life and they suddenly see this is our future. This is what God promises for us. He not only died on the cross for us, he was raised to life for our, our hope. And more than that too, he presently, says uh, Paul, is seated at the right hand of God himself, interceding for us. He knows what it is to be human. He was human fully human, truly human. And he reminds God of that. He died for all of our sins. And he reminds God of that. He fulfilled all of God's promises. And he reminds God of that. God the Son speaks to God the Father and says, we know now the human condition. We know that together we have achieved complete forgiveness of sins. We know now that together we have achieved a solid victory even over death. Let's let them know it. Let's let them enjoy it. He intercedes at the right hand of God, says Paul, so that we are absolutely secure in God's love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We plumb the depths of God. It's God's Spirit gives us that access to the depths of who God is. We find what God gives us, what He has freely given us. We understand it in our hearts. And we know we are absolutely secure in God. Christ's love. But there is another aspect to God's free gift which is vitally important that we understand if we are to have a solid, robust understanding of what it means to know the depths of God. What it means to know truly what God has freely given us. And at first it's really rather disturbing. It's found in Philippians 1.29. Same word again. It has been granted to you, it has been freely given to you 
on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but to suffer for him. In other words, says, says Paul here, suffering for Christ too is a gift of God. Of course, suffering is a terrible result of the fall. It is a manifestation of the dreadful hostility of Satan against us. But it is also, says Paul, rightly understood, a gift of God. And I know immediately we'll cry, thanks God, I don't want that gift. Like, like, like um, unwrapping a Christmas present on, uh, 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 on Christmas Day and finding a dead rat, isn't it? You know, we just didn't want that. It's a horrible joke, surely. It's a sick product of a cruel mind. To grant all those good things and also to grant suffering. But the Bible says repeatedly that for Christians, suffering too can be God's good gift to us. Never ceases to have its evil dimension. It never ceases to be a manifestation of how this world has gone wrong, of the hostility of uh, the devil against us. But it also carries with it God's power to bring good things into our lives. In God's hands, suffering can be used to wean us off our idolatrous attachment to temporary things and to fix our heart on him who is our only true joy. In God's hands, suffering can produce beauty and godliness in ways that ease and plenty never could do. And I know I hear some of you at least saying, I don't see that, I don't experience that. How can I know that? Because all I see is suffering is tough and difficult and something to be got rid of. And we have to go back to 1 Corinthians 2 and we have to say to ourselves again and again and again, what it is that will transform that experience of suffering into a good thing for us is the Spirit of God. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. The Spirit from God helps us understand what God has freely given us. Helps us know what God has freely given us. Helps us see how this trial, this difficulty, evil as it is, can produce good. Often it is not obvious on the surface. Often it requires extraordinary patience. Often it requires painful explorations of our own hearts. Often it requires days, weeks, months, years, decades of prayer. 
But the Spirit of God is determined to help us to see how in the heart of God there was a purpose to work in all things for the good of those who love him. deeper we penetrate into the heart of God, the more clearly we will see a burning, everlasting love which, with which God planned for all eternity from before time to graciously give us all things for our glory. Puritan Richard Sibbs once put it like this, whatever is good for God's children, they shall have it. For all is theirs to further them to heaven. If crosses be good, they shall have them. If disgrace be good, they shall have it. For all is theirs to further their main good. There is nothing that I can do to help you see that with your heart can do my very, very best to explain it from Scripture and to show you that it's there. I can pray, but it is the Holy Spirit in your heart that will help you to understand what God has graciously given you. So I want to, I want to challenge us three things this morning first of all I want to say study and pray and live seeking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to unplug your deaf ears to let, to let that that, that dawn rise in your heart, all of which Isaiah said he couldn't see and longed for and which the New Testament says you can know by God's Spirit. It is God's Spirit that will make you wise, that will glorify you, will help you understand. Don't be satisfied with book knowledge. Don't, don't be satisfied with, with ordinary and normal day-to-day -day obedience. Don't be satisfied with just enduring the difficult things and enjoying the good moments when, when they come. Look for God in the whole of your life and ask God's Spirit to open the eyes of your hearts to see And a second thing, go out into this world to live your lives humbly but confidently that God has given you wisdom. You do understand this world more profoundly than, than anyone who does not know Christ 
You understand our root problem is our sin. You understand that the only solution for our sins is the death of God's Son, Christ. You understand that we can only really live a a life as we follow Christ. You understand that we must trust Christ for everything. You understand the beauty of humility and patience and, and gentleness. And you know that only God's Spirit can produce that in people. God's Spirit who comes from Christ. You understand that death is not the end because Christ rose from the dead to assure us of resurrection glory. You understand this world. You really do. You understand. And it will make you shine in the workplace as you live according to those truths. In your family, with your friends. Because you do have wisdom. Live it everywhere. And then finally, let every part of your life be turned into praise. Seek the Spirit's help and you will find yourself saying with the Apostle Paul, as he says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory for ever. Amen. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it at the end of chapter 2. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. by the Spirit.